previously on Some Like It Pops Making a Musical, hosted by Jennifer McHugh. There are moments when you hear something and you know that's the million dollar idea. These two kind of rambunctious nerds have been trying to use science to win themselves popularity. Something goes wrong and Griff turns invisible. Griff is, he's your, your standard nerd ball. He just wants a better life. I heard his pitch and it pushed every single one of my buttons as far as what I wanted to do artistically, what I wanted to say. It's a hit and it's awesome. And I'm so excited to be there on opening night. Here's a show that's about what it means to see another human being, but is actually a broad comedy, but I get to write pop music, but it's got a John Hughes. Yeah, and it's that about that, huh? It's kind of useful being invisible. Welcome to our season finale of Making a Musical. I can't believe it. We first recorded these episodes with the Davids last year in 2016. We started airing them in April. Now it is May of 2017. So I think we're coming up on a year that we've known each other. Is that possible, you guys? Yeah, just about a year. When was the, when was the, yeah. when was the Burbank stage reading? It was in June. So we're right there. Oh my gosh. That's so <laughs> crazy. So... Since then, um, you most recently had another stage reading done in Irvine that myself and two of my best friends attended and we were gushing to you afterwards how wonderful it was. So let's start off by getting your general reactions. What, what have been your general reactions to this series uh, as far as you guys listening and thinking back and the reactions you received? I'm genuinely extremely pleased with the feedback that we got. Um, I I mean, it really... I was, I was, I guess, expecting like a certain level of, uh, you know, light, um, interest and, and excitement, but like a lot of people, I mean, we have no connection to or anything really, um, I think kind of stepped up to the plate to, to let us know that they, they loved it. I was, I was really excited about it. Yeah, me too. It's been amazing. It's just been really fun to listen to. I guess that's, I don't know if that's a little self-involved, but I mean, you guys have really given us like such a gift in the, in the form of the, the sort of documentation of the process and, and making us think about questions and answer them while we still are retaining that information and that memory. Um, it's been really just personally enjoyable and yeah, nothing but great feedback from everyone. And, um, uh, I know we have a lot of feelers and interest out in the water from other theaters and even some Broadway producers who have expressed to me personally that they've been listening and really enjoying. So it's been awesome. And just to clarify, that wasn't a, a dig for compliments of us. <laughs> I just so wanted awesome. to, um, <laughs> just uh, we, wanted to see how it's been interesting for me. I'm sure it's been interesting for you guys just to listen back and see how much things have changed. So let's segue into the most recent reading that we just spoke about that took place in April. Um, 3d theatricals put it on down in orange County and I attended, had a great time Two of the principals that we have spoken to on this podcast, Ashley and Michael, your actors who played Hemlock and Griff, respectively, could not join this production due to scheduling conflicts. So I was wondering if you could describe, both of you, um, what it's like to rehearse and put together a staged reading when you're replacing two of the main characters, you know, that have been with you almost the whole ride. Yeah, this is David Orr speaking. I think I broke out into a cold sweat <laughs> when I found out and, tr and tried not to go into total panic because Ashley and Michael were just so great. And um, 
Michael is uh, doing Romy and Michelle in Seattle. And um, Ashley had, I think, uh, a showcase in Nashville. But we found it, it turned out to be, it turned out to work out. It worked out really, really well. First, we have all stall, our stalwarts like Dan Ammerman and Jordan Goodsell and, and Christy Burke and all the people coming back to the cast. So that really helped. And then we got two really great people to play Griffin Hemlock in the form of uh, Juliana Keller and Daniel Belushi, um, who were just workhorses and had the best work ethic and were so talented and so game and just dove right in. And I thought were really incredibly, just did really incredible jobs. So I was terrified of what it what was going to happen. But uh, as it turned out, I had nothing to worry about, I think. This time around, we had, I think, even less time to prepare um, than than last time. So we really had like it was just a testament to, to how amazing, especially uh, Daniel and Juliana being handed these roles, how how well they completely like you know got into the into the swing of it. And um, I actually really something that I really liked is they they actually made a lot of very different choices than um, a lot of our previous Hemlocks and Griffs. And it was actually really exciting to see just the different takes. Um, that could happen. And, and, and th- this time around, it w- there was like a really, like a, 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 a really pronounced pathos, especially to the relationship between Griff and Hemlock that like really like tugged at my heart in a very different way. And it was, uh, I think, I think Oris and I both broke out into tears during a couple rehearsals just because, yeah, totally. Um, certain scenes had money to them that was just like, it was, it, it was just different than what we'd seen before. I think that's a good point, especially in you saying that it was different, not necessarily better or worse, but just different because uh, with Michael and Ashley, I felt that it was very sweet and like high school and love Lauren, but this felt a little bit more to me almost grown up and it was very like gut wrenching, almost like you just were taken back to that feeling of like that first love and it's never going to happen and it was just different. And I appreciate that both portrayals. And it was, I think, a testament to the writing from both of you that is well enough written um, that it can be interpreted in many different ways and still be successful. Yeah, that's, thank you so that's much. That's very sweet. Thank you. I, I, I think it largely a testament also to our director and cast who were able to um, to just like play with, with really interesting things. And again, in a like equally valid and, and good, but just like totally different and interesting way to approach these scenes and characters. I felt the same way as you, Jen. I just thought it was, there were some really heart wrenching moments. And, um, I actually turned to David Hollingsworth in a couple of, in one particular rehearsal and we were kind of talking about that. And he said, yeah, they're giving us, they're giving us freaks and geeks. And I was like, that is exactly what it is. Yeah. Um, yeah, I thought they were, and, and like David said, the, the whole cast and especially Ryan Rouge, our director, who just had some really, he just he he took the show to a, a an emotionally deep place, and I think I really felt that throughout the process. I don't know if if you realized in previous episodes, but I'm a pretty big fan of Jordan, and <laughs> it seems pretty universal. But it was great to see Jordan and Dan both repri- reprise their roles as Chetwick and Kemper, respectively. Are these two or any of the other cast members like attached for the foreseeable future or does it just all depend on, you know, what they can book in the meantime? Um, in our minds, they are. <laughs> a lot of this is going to depend on a lot of moving parts. Like, like you said, if, 
if they're available. Um, Jordan has just started booking TV shows. Dan already books TV shows. And so these are busy, talented guys. So if we, if we're lucky enough to get them, then yeah, they're attached if, if God willing and fate and all that. Yeah. I mean, and we've, we've not had any kind of like contract or anything with them. They just are that dedicated of of a performer and, and just that good of people. (laughs) Like their, their strength of character is so much that like, they're just willing to give so much of their time and, and throw so much of themselves into the show. And it's like, it's that, that to me still remains like one of the touching aspects of this is that, we, we don't have any kind of like monetary agreement for the most part, um, of, or any kind of like promise with really no one is attached, but just people keep coming back because they're great and because, uh, they just have a lot of fun in these roles, I think. And they're great. And yeah, like you said, they're just really generous artists and thank God. Yeah. I do have to tell you that, um, there's been a few times at work these past few weeks when someone has said good for you. And in my head, I just start singing that song and no. <laughs> physically impossible for anyone to get the reference but it's just really (laughs) funny that that's that's stuck in my head all the time i do want to call out one other actor that i noticed the first time and forgot to mention throughout this whole process and that is the guy who plays the teacher what's his name well it was a different actor this time um the first time it was luke clip and this time it was dan lewis dan lewis is Uh, phenomenal what were your inspirations for this role because even though, you know, I'm so enamored with, with Jordan and blown away by, uh, Dan and, and Michael and, and the, uh, the new actors this time, this guy really holds his own. And I don't just mean the actor, I mean the role itself because both actors who portrayed it, it is such a strong bit part that I'm just curious to see where this came from. So could you just describe, well, first of all, the character and, and where it came from in your minds? Um, yeah, so, so Dan Lewis and Luke Clip both, uh, portrayed Mr. Reeves, the, um, kind of awkward and really trying too hard to be respected and liked social studies teacher at Springboro. Um, and this character is very directly inspired by sort of the, the sad sack sidekicks of mainly like the John Hughes era. It's pretty much explicitly as I was thinking of the character. It was just what would happen if Ducky grew up. Um, and then went to teach back at his old high school, but then like became so insecure that his whole identity became around like, well, I'm actually pretty young too. What do we, what do we think about that? So that's, that's <laughs> the, uh, the premise. And, and I, Oris can speak more to the musical kind of inspirations for this character, but we decided it'd be really fun to kind of attach a, um, kind of new wop, uh, <laughs> uh, oh God, like, you know, like that kind of, 80s 50s revival of um wham yes wham (laughs) thank you very much wham and like when billy joel was doing his whole thing um and uh and that whole um whole scene and uh even like huey lewis and and the news that kind of thing so uh the the idea of this character is he's just sort of this throwback to a lot of those ideas so he's wearing a fedora and a trench coat um but also just trying too hard and literally his entire identity is is still stuck in uh, being in high school and being the the sidekick that got rejected in favor of the um, the tough kid, and is still sort of playing that role even as a teacher. So it was musically a lot of fun to think about what this guy would think was musically slick, and um, that's why I kind of settled on the the sort of resurgent idea of the fifties music that sort of made an appearance in the eighties, which 
sort of accidentally seem to slip into kind of a rat pack kind of a feel some of the time too. Like a real, wow, I'm having like, a lot of like, scenery um, on this night. Like the straight like cat. Yeah. Yeah. L- like, like, the, like the new Dean Martin kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, the crooners. Yeah. Um, just because this guy would probably think that was really, you know, the cutting edge thing. And um, in his own way, he, in his, in all his, his own ragey grown up nerdiness. He is kind of cool. <laughs> well, he made me laugh a lot. I, um, I just wanted to call out a few of the other characters because we focus so much on the principles, you know, besides the teacher, we have two girls, popular girls that are attached to Chetwick and then Kemper gets popular. So they want to be with him. And I also really love Chetwick's friends slash spoiler lover slash who turn on him when, you know, I just want to call out all these other actors. You know, we've, we concentrate on wonderful Jordan Goodsell, but there's like 50 people that, that are on this stage. I might be over exaggerating. And every single person is having a, every, every single person's having a moment and they're having a reaction and they're creating these characters. So I think with real rehearsal and real like development, all those little bit parts in the background will, will become larger and I saw way more this time than I did last time. So are there any that maybe not even like the, the cheerleaders or the goons, but like, are there any other stereotypical background characters that you have a particular attachment to or that you can particularly relate to? Well, um, you, you mentioned uh, the character of Craig, which is uh, Jordan's sidekick slash later love interest played by the fantastic uh, Luke Matthew Simon. And yeah, he, I mean, it, you could see exactly what you're saying started happening in this process. Jordan and Luke had, this was their second time doing this together. So they had really started to settle into a, into a groove together. They gotten real comfortable making out. <laughs> and um, they, when, when it came time to do No One But Me and that moment where Craig enters and, and my conceit in that song had always been, you know, sort of, telenovela the wind blowing in his hair kind of thing was the best (laughs) he kind of comes in and he just owned they both just owned it they were just there in it they came up with this move where they like in the rehearsal where they did this blocking where they did like a backwards semicircle mirroring each other together with their arms out we were crying yeah Um, it reminded me of um the dance at the gym in west side story as soon as it happened, I was like, oh, my God, they're they're parodying the West Side Story Dance with the Gym. <laughs> you know, that hadn't even occurred to me, but you're right. That is exactly what that is. I played Tony yeah. in high school. I should have caught that. Yeah, it was so many. I mean, it's hard to it's getting harder to dissect what is our attachment to the character and what is our attachment to the performer. Or at least it is for me. Luke was definitely a real standout. And I think I have a real attachment to Craig and, and the other sidekick Jackal played by Daniel Mills, who is fantastic. And they just look like such a formidable force together on stage. I'd be afraid of them. Yeah. Uh, Daniel and Luke both like consistently crack me up every night with like just some choice they would make with, with something like there's a moment where the script literally just said, Oh, look, I have to go. And um, Daniel every night would go, Oh, look, I have to go. And it like it would crack me up every time just based on the, the context where that scene is. Um, but actually the sort of the, the expansion of kind of the world of, of the high school with all these different um, cliques and, and stereotypes kind of, kind of coming together and, and having their own 
arcs a little bit was actually something that we we developed a, largely from uh, from conversations uh, with TJ about like basically kind of kind of filling in this big canvas of ensemble to create just this really both big sound but also just a lot of like business for for the audience to to attach to um, and I actually thought that was one of the more um, more uh, like successful changes that we've um, made so far um, is just that 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 kind of like energy kind of crackling throughout. And you've got like, you know, the 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 show choir kids um, and you've got the the stoners and the the popular girls and the um, the nerds. And uh, I think one of my favorites was the um, the religious girls, partly because they just they had a, a really fun like Dungeons and Dragons scare line, which <laughs> I really enjoyed writing and making someone else say. Um, but yeah, <laughs> yeah I awesome. really like that. Yeah, the, the 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 energy of just like, you know, kind of things always popping off. I thought um, I thought really worked out. I, I do too. I was, we've been taking notes from 3d for about two years now. This was our third set of readings in the 3d theatrical space and uh, working with TJ and um, yeah, his, you know, I don't, I, I, I admitted to Ryan um, who's, this is so bad. I I'm terrible with titles. Ryan is the associate creative director. I think nobody shoot me if I got that wrong, but he, He's, you know, TJ's right-hand man, and he's the guy who directed our reading this time around. I was telling Ryan, um, I don't always get TJ's notes right off the bat. They never sound wrong to me, but when he told us to bulk up the student body and, you know, he said it's not just the winners and the losers. This is what I thought was so insightful. It's not just the jocks and the nerds. It's not just the top and the bottom. There are a lot of people that fly under the radar and are doing their own thing. And if you fill out the student body and create those worlds, you're going to make that world feel fuller. And I think that really, I think that really happened. Um, I didn't, I could kind of couldn't see the forest for the trees until we had implemented the note. And I went, wow, he knows what he's talking about <laughs> as he does every time. Actually is a really good note to, you know, identify the middle class and realize there's not just rich and poor. Anyway, moving on. Um, <laughs> we won't get political. Uh, can you tell us if there were any like real significant changes between the Burbank and the Orange County stage reading? That was probably the most significant change was the, I mean, we added like 10 or 12 people to the ensemble and all these different groups which meant also we added like a second half to the number get to the prom. We added a whole new number at the top of the show. Um, this is the day we added, um, what else did we add Hollingsworth? We added all those little scenes, you know, like Hollingsworth was just talking about with, you know, the religious girls and the Valley girls and so forth. It was, it was more populating the school with, with all the different groups that hadn't, existed in the previous draft so that was actually pretty significant that ended up yeah even even coloring songs that didn't necessarily like receive a huge overhaul but like uh, it just sort of ended up changing kind of the again sort of the feel of a couple songs because we again emphasized uh the ensemble more um what else do we do? we we <laughs> actually i think the the maybe the biggest one is that we um so the the Popular girls, the um, the the Tiffany's used to be twin sisters, and then we just decided. I think that that was just a little too convoluted, and so they're just they're just both named Tiffany, and that's their their now strong connection, rather than literally being like gene clones of each other, which also makes it much easier to cast. 
because there's not a lot of twin acts going around Broadway right now. Fun little nod to Heather's. But that is a really good note from TJ. Like, good job, TJ. Because like I remember watching 90210 growing up, and you're like, I like this show, but like everything that happens at that school is them. You know, if it's homecoming, it's them. If it's a parade, it's them. Like there's no one else around. So, yeah. I mean, the absence of it, you don't notice it, but the adding of it really, really makes a, a positive change to it. Good job, yeah. TJ. Yes. It made the re- I, I ended up having to rewrite what was formerly the opening number hallways. And that was probably my biggest job. That was a nightmare because that number is, it's like, at, at, I think at the point when everybody is singing, it's 12 or 16 staves on a single page. Um, that means 12 or 16 different parts happening at once, vocal parts. So that was quite a thing to tear apart and rewrite. <laughs> I hope to not do it again soon. All right. So tell us what's coming up next. What are the next things that are happening for Invisible? We we have a another meeting um, scheduled in June with 3D, um, and uh, from then on, it's we're we're just I think we're we're just figuring out what the future is. We we've been connecting with a number of people, and I I have um, some meetings in New York with uh, Broadway producers in the fall, but I can't say more than that at this point. That's very exciting. <laughs> Um, I know this is probably not in the near future, but are there plans to do a cast recording? Because um, my best friends came with me and very much enjoyed the music. And I just feel like everyone deserves to hear Jordan Goodsell walk on stage and hit that opening note. You are the ah. sweetest. Um, and I agree about Jordan Goodsell and yes. everybody in the cast. I, I mean, really, like, R- yeah, I, I, I know we go on and on about this every time. But the people we ended up with the ensemble were like, and this has happened every time we end up with ensemble who should all be like lead players, but there's no current plan for a cast recording uh, simply because it's an incredibly expensive endeavor to do correctly. When we get to the point where we're talking about um, the world premiere, that might be part of a discussion. Usually that doesn't come into play. Uh, this is my understanding anyway, um, until you, uh, you know, are going into a Broadway house, but uh you know, from your lips to God's ears. Something more that I want than, than a cast album, because I feel like that that alone would also just be uh, it would 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 sell the show on its own merits. But like, um, but yeah, that's 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 definitely something Aww. we're hoping for. I'm so sad to wrap this series up because it's been a lot of fun, but I'm so grateful to both of you guys for letting me join you, you know, for part of your journey. Um, we're both super excited to see where this goes and we would love if we could check in with you periodically as success comes your way. And I know that I have people listening who would really like to know what's going on. And the only thing I ask in return is a shout out at the Tony's. Are you kidding? We are so grateful to you guys. Shout out at the Tonys at the very least. And uh, <laughs> tickets for as long as you can stand to watch the show. For real. No, this is this has been such an unbelievable opportunity and such a just like just blast. Thank you so much for, for coming up with this and, and letting us join you. you guys and um you know we'll check in we'll see how it goes and we wish you the best of luck 
And that's David Hollingsworth and David Orris, the creators of Invisible the Musical. And thank you all for joining us for our first edition of Making a Musical from Some Like It Pop. And we promise to keep you updated with the Invisible team and check in on their progress. And we will feature a season two of Making a Musical sometime in the near future. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.